0: So I have to tell you, um, we're, we're in the middle of, you know, on what it be people and we've been serve God in our home and our workplace and the other bar, and what that looks like and how we're able to be. talking about what it looks like people that God keeps saying to us. that's kinda of this series and next week we'll continue. And, uh, and then we'll move and we'll spend eight weeks looking at what it is God has for us. And what I mean is this, what's the point of life? What do we live for? What's God's call to gather weekend? And what are we supposed to do? So we're looking at that to give us some guidance on what it looks like life. And so we're gonna next, and actually trying to get perspective. And, and one of the things that I think is interesting, and and maybe frustration to start the sermon, it's probably true. Some of you I lose every week anyway. Um, but what I what I have noticed is I remember a few years ago, and I'm I hate I'm not a huge amusement park fan. I'll go and you know I'll put on the good face and I'll close my eyes on all the rides. But I remember um, trying to I was I was dating this girl in college, seeing this amusement park and. And uh, I agreed to go on the ride called The Drop Zone at Paramount's Kings Island in, in Cincinnati. And so on this, this stories, and your feet are dangling. It's a terrible idea. Don't ever do this. But there, and then they just, oh, we got 15 stories, right? So I'm afraid of heights. So about the first 25 feet, I'm kind of looking going, oh, okay. And then I shut my eyes because this is stupid. Why would I look? Um, if you see, I mean, I'm just sweating through everything. I'm, I'm pleading with me, you know, I mean, like this thing's safe, rational at this point. At the top and for a reason for a split second, I open my eyes and I look out and it was actually a pretty beautiful scene. You can see all the, all of the amusement park around you and, and I can see because of the terror that came next um, when you heard the click and you fell. But, but I remember that looking out over that whole area and just seeing everything and put kind of everything in perspective. Life, been like kind of high above something, you can able to look down, it gives perspective. Maybe you've been on an airport 5,000 feet and you look down and you see all this stuff and you can't even see people. You think they're cars because they're moving, but you're not even sure. You know, I mean, like there's something about giving perspective. Or maybe you've been on a mountaintop and you look back, and you see stuff down below, and you go, um, those people look really small from that far away. It's about being high above perspective. As this morning this has for us from Matthew chapter 28, but what's interesting to me is the rest. Pretty much, everything that happened for him—sermon on. on the mount was on the Mount of olives. The transfiguration was on a mountain to go to. The house. We get caught in the busyness of life; we can't step away from that and see what Jesus teach us because we get so in- And so, I think throughout the scriptures we see Jesus on the mountaintop, so that we can understand that to know what God has. Twenty-eight, verse sixteen. And here are the words from Matthew. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, with you always, to the very end of the age. I'm I'm kind of convinced there's some some ways we could look at it for weeks and weeks. But the, the things that we read in the text, he begins it with, with. They show up right. This is the guy they watched himself was hung on a cross, and meet him on the mountaintop. And others doubt. Now they're the same people who saw him raise people from the dead himself, saw him come back from being buried for three days. I know that sometimes, no matter what God has done in our life, no matter what He has done, or the Spirit has, we're really a problem for God. I know that that, and he can still shape us. But I love what Jesus says next. As, as if he has read their mind, he says, listen, all authority, all power on heaven and earth is mine. And he ends this under the age. chapter 1, when, when the angel visits Mary and Joseph, it has these words for them. And you will name him Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 7, it talks about this. And God with us. Jesus for them. And I will be with you. Always. Here, here's the one who's come and lived and died and lived this incredible life. And he comes to these, these 11 uneducated, well, some of them were kind of educated, ordinary. From If I asked you, I probably couldn't eat it. But these 11 uneducated guys, Jesus goes and says, listen, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And I'm calling you to go and to teach them. This is an incredible story. Tell the world because if they hadn't done what he commissioned them to do in this moment, you and I wouldn't be sitting here right now. These eleven guys were convinced that this was really God in flesh. That this really was we're going to be his disciples, and we're going to go and make disciples. Because I don't know what God makes no sense. He uses us. Scriptures for us. And see, the truth is, all of us probably have a tendency. I remember being a kid. and I remember playing lots of dad, supposedly help. I wore two so parents. I should do it too. If some kind of things that I do, I don't know, but, but you know, like I was working, he's got this little like resistance band in the he goes, look dad, I'm working out, mom, look at me, take my picture, um, <laughs> sorry, <but> that's okay, <laughs> but we, we always go, no, no, I don't follow someone, and it, well, that might be true, but 500 million people are on Twitter, the whole point of Twitter is you follow someone, 500 million people, they're all following someone, they're listening to something you know, I, I'm just my own, I'm just emo, it's some thing. um I'm just emo the other ten emo kids that look just like me. You know what I mean? Like, really? No, you're, you're actually acting like all of them. Um, they don't get that, that's okay. That's true. We um, follow somebody. It's true for all of us. Even the way we dress, I mean, there's some way that we wear, so I think I'm, you stay, no following no, someone in some way doing something, following the right things. Are we, are we following things we want? story of this pastor tells you he was visiting new york and he's in central park walking through and he saw this group of orthodox jews going through cuz when you fall a rabbi they, they would the disciples would huddle around them because they didn't want to miss said they wanted to hear everything that and so this guy was laughing in new york city in central park and the rabbi <laughs> but the whole point is they didn't want to miss anything that the teacher had for them he be just like him things happened at the turn of the century. Church in North America had an interesting this kind of this split in some ways. It was churches began to split. Some churches were about to develop out of this. And we sometimes call them our mainline Protestant and evangelical. And there's a split. And I got to tell you what happened. So we, we sometimes label them liberal versus conservative or, or whatever. But they came to this idea that you could separate the social justices of Jesus that and you could separate the preaching, so I highly apologize. Um, one of the things that happened is, is in terms to even finances in the church, you know, there's this principle in scriptures that you, you tithe 10% of your income. In. And I'm not really wanting to talk about that, but I'm going to talk about is the result of that. In 1960, 46 of those who called them born-again evangelical Christians tithed about 4.6%. In the year 2000, that number was down to 2.5%. And so the church on average right now, um, the church in North America raises about $40 billion in one year. And right now you're going, well, why do we care? Because if the church tied the 10% that the scriptures tell us, it would raise about $160 billion in one year. And that's, these are incredible numbers. I'm the first to acknowledge that. For $80 billion a year, we could end all hunger issues around the world and all education problems around the entire world. For $80 billion, if churches gave 10%. Do you realize that also doubles than what local churches have to do for ministry in their own areas? It's an incredible statistic, but it's because our kids are watching, and so apparently some parents weren't embodying what it looks like to have the fullness of Scripture. But can you imagine what would happen if the church began to embody the out? I mean, part of the reason governments are too involved, but that's because there was a day when churches invested in their communities and the churches owned all the hospitals and the churches did the work that Christ calls them to Everywhere. They educated all the kids. And so the world did look different, yeah. But someone had to step up, and it wasn't the churches. And so the truth is, we've probably screwed up way more than we ever should have. That we find ourselves in places where where it's not liberal versus conservative, it's just preach the gospel versus salvation it's not justice versus salvation it's not compassion versus evangelism it's recognizing that god calls to be disciples to teach to baptize to understand all that jesus has for us because what jesus came to remind us and to let us know is that god really is king heaven and earth meet in christ and something transformative happens and it begins to transform the way even the world looks and functions and acts and that's what god is part doing and what's so crazy about this is that Jesus and God in all their infinite wisdom chose to use a bunch of people like you and me who frankly get it wrong way more than we get it right. It's an incredible story about what God desires to do in the world. And as I, as I was reading some different commentaries this week, I love what N.T. Wright said about this passage. He said people get very puzzled by the claim that Jesus is already ruling the world until they see that what is in fact being said. The claim is not that the world is already completely as Jesus intends it to be. The claim is that he is working to take it from where it was under the rule not only of death, but of corruption and every kind of wickedness and to bring it by slow means and quick under the rule of his life-giving love. Here's the shock. Through us, his followers. The project only goes forward insofar as Jesus' agents, the people he has commissioned, are taking it forward. Many today mock this claim just as much as they mock the resurrection itself. The church in its various forms has got so much wrong, has made so many mistakes, has let its Lord down so often that many people, including many who love Jesus for themselves, despair of it and suppose that nothing will ever change until Jesus himself returns to sort it all out. But that isn't Matthew's belief, and it doesn't fit with what we know of Jesus' commissioning of his followers in Luke, Acts, and John. It doesn't fit with Paul's vision of his task. They all agree with Matthew. Those who believe in Jesus, who are witnesses to his resurrection, are given the responsibility to go and make real in the world the authority which he already has as part of the answer to the prayer that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. If we pray that prayer, we shouldn't be surprised if we are called upon to help bring about God's answer to it. And we'll pray that by our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for that is the power and the glory and forever. We have seen, we're have in a different version here. <laughs> but the point is not missed in that anyway. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is Jesus' message for his disciples, that, that I, he doesn't want it to be some far off reality, but he wants it to come here. And so we, his church, his people are the ones who are to usher in this kingdom. Even though we struggled, even though we've fallen way more than ever Jesus would have hoped for, he's still calling us to go and make his disciples to go into our homes and our workplaces and the various places we live and go and model what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in every aspect of our life. Because then and only then will the church begin to do the work it's really been called to do. And we gather each week as a reminder of what Jesus has called us to go into the world to be a part of. His unique mission, his unique redemptive work in this whole world. And this is what it's called to be a part of his redemptive story. To say again and again, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Not some far-off reality, not blow this place up first, but thy kingdom come here and now. And Jesus, use us to do that. And that's the call here in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's like the words of Micah. Love ju- seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. You know, we don't have great commissioning words in the church. We, we do things for pastors sometimes, like commission them in, in kind of ways, and that's, that's fine and good, but I really don't care about that. Um, what I'm convinced of is that sometimes God wants to call his people to be unique, to be sent to the world. I'm convinced that sometimes he, he does things, and we do weird things in the church, and so if you're a guest with us today, this is a weird thing that happens in the church, and yes, it's weird, and I can explain it to you later if you'd like, but it's a bizarre thing. But sometimes we anoint people and we take the words of Jesus where he says, in the name of the Son, in the name of the, the Holy Spirit, go. And so this morning as the band comes up and you guys can come up and play and we'll sing a song together, um, Dick Fry is going to help me. And um, anyone who wants to, as we sing, we're going to invite you to come forward And as, after I pray and as we sing and, and we'll anoint you in the name of the Father and the Son is still the same as it was to these 11 men from Galilee, the middle of nowhere. To go and make disciples in all the world, to transfer say thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we invite you to come and be anointed. And if you come, you're saying to God, I want to go. I want to go and make disciples. I want to follow you with my life. And that's the invitation. So will you pray with me and stand as we pray to sing and feel free to come after we pray. Father, we thank you for the way you're at work in this world, and it's our hope and our prayer that you will continue to transform us to be your people. We will continue to say to you, "Go, Father, that, that we want to go wherever you lead us." And so we sing these words: oh, that our God is greater, our God is strong, that our God is mighty, that if He's for us, and who can be against us? And we believe that in this day that our God desires to transform us to be His people. May we be Your disciples today. May we go and make disciples in all the places that our lives intersect.